1978, a satirical novel was published that would make waves in the medical community and beyond. It tells the story of an intern, Dr. Roy Bosch, uh, working at a major American hospital nicknamed the House of God, and learning that medicine is about letting old people die and fornicating as often as possible. Here, here. The author was Samuel Shem, a pseudonym of psychiatrist Stephen Bergman, and the novel is called House of God. This is a special episode of The Body of Evidence in which we'll discuss the book and how medicine has changed over the decades. Joining me, as always, is Dr. Christopher Labos, cardiologist and epidemiologist, and also Nicholas Kaziris, a third-year medical student. So I want to preface this by saying that we we're coming at this novel from three uh, different perspectives. So uh, as regular listeners know, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not a med student. Uh, my background is in molecular biology. I have worked in hospitals for many years. I've, I've interacted with a lot of different physicians, from surgeons to pathologists to geneticists. So I come at it from that perspective. Uh, Chris, you were in med school, what, 10, 15 years ago? Uh, graduated from med school in 2006. So right. yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've yeah. been practicing for quite a while yeah. as a cardiologist. And Nico, you are currently a med student. That's so right. we have an interesting diversity of, of perspectives on this. Um, so I would like to start by asking uh, the two of you your initial condensed impressions of the book. And I will start with um, a, uh, by admitting something. I, I got the book from the library in preparation mm. for this. I had never read it. I initially... Had you even heard about it ever? I had heard about it vaguely, <clears throat> yes, uh, but never to the point where I felt compelled to right. go out and read it. I love a good satire, and, and I, as I started to read it, I really, I was really enjoying it because uh, there is a very distinct voice mm -hmm. in the book, um, and and it, it was quite interesting. I stopped reading the book mm -hmm. around page one fifty or so. Okay, what happened uh, there? Well, uh, how far uh, into it were you at that point? Well, it's about it's about four hundred <clears throat> pages. Yeah. Um. So about about around 100, page one hundred fifty. Um, f f I stopped reading for, for multiple reasons that we will discuss uh, afterwards, um, but also because from the point of view of a novel, there's no, there's no real progression happening. It's, a, it's, just a, it's a collage of incidents, yeah. and it really felt like, and that may, might actually be what happened, that the author at the end of his week would go to his typewriter mm -hmm. and just start vaguely fictionalizing what had just happened to him in the past week. And then he did that week after week after week. And it just becomes this collage yeah. of incidents and interesting character moments. But there's no buildup. There's no real story there. And so I just became really bored with it. I returned the book. And then I watched a movie. And we'll talk about the okay. movie afterwards. I've watched the entire movie that was made in 1984. Well, but, that, that actually is kind of how the book was written. Because if you watch the specials that have been made about this book, Shem will actually say that... Uh, and there are actually audio recordings where he and his friends, because all the characters in the book are based on real people. Yes, people I watched that. Yeah. They would get together, drink, and just talk about their experiences. And he then, you know, novelized it in like a very veiled, fictionalized attempt. So right. what you've said is actually probably not far from the truth. That probably is how the book is written. It probably was a series of things that happened over the course of a one-year time span. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Chris, uh, when did when did you when did you read the book? I read the book in medical school, uh, okay. actually, right around the, the same level that you were. Probably a little bit younger than you, actually, or I mean, earlier in your. By you, you mean Nico and not me. By, by Nico, yeah. <laughs> For people who can't see what's happening right now in your kitchen. 
um, I think I was either a first year or a second year medical student. This was part of because there's different aspects to medical school. There are these longitudinal classes that go by different names. And a lot of them are about medicine and society and whatever. Uh, and so one of our things was, well, and everybody says, you have to read this book. You have to read this book. It's a critical for your medical education. Like everyone has to read this book in medical school. Mm. So, okay. So I went out and I got the book and I read it. I don't think I bought it. I think I got it from the library as well. And I read it and I was, and my first impression was, this is not a very good book. It's not very well written. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, I was still early in my medical training. I'm like, I'm pretty sure this isn't how hospitals work. I mean, a lot, there's a lot of sex in that book. Yes, there's, there's a, a lot, lot of sex. sex. A lot of sex. Are I mean, you, are not you just saying me. this was different from your experience? Very much so, yes. <laughs> very, very much so. Uh, you know, everyone has these, like, folkloric tales about people who are having sex in the call rooms at night, but it never happens. You're too tired when you're on call to actually go and, like, have <laughs> sex in the call room. That doesn't happen. Um, so, yeah, it, 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 it was... There are aspects of the book that I think hit close to the mark and, and we'll, we'll talk about that but my initial impression was why does everybody talk about this book as if it's this great literary classic it's really not mm -hmm. it's poorly written really poorly written it's not you know it, it, as an it's as a narrative it's not great fiction the ending doesn't make sense mm -hmm. <laughs> the well, ending we'll yeah. is just ludicrous we'll get to that at the we'll very get end. to that thing but it's like and it's just a lot of it is you know, it's very demeaning to women, like very, yes. very demeaning to women. Uh, and it's, you know, it's just, it's not, it was probably reflective of what was going on at the time in terms of people becoming frustrated with the futility of medicine. Mm -hmm. And maybe the fact that we've evolved quite a bit in terms of our medical practice and our abilities means that a lot of the despair that these residents went through is not something we really feel anymore although i would say that there is still a lot of that in the medical training that we go through like people do feel despair so i guess the reason why people still talk about the book is that some of the core messages still resonate even today even though it's not a very good book to echo what you said about orgies yeah and that should go in a t-shirt that's right um from a new yorker piece about the book by dr rachel pearson Quote, there is an actual orgy in the call room in the House of God, yeah. which in retrospect feels quaint. What intern has time for an orgy yeah. these days? <laughs> you, would, you would get paged out of it within 10 minutes. You really would. Your phone does not stop ringing when you're on call. So, Nico. I mean, I was on call today. My I could right. not go 15 minutes. You didn't with, have time for an orgy. No, <laughs> I didn't have time to eat lunch. Actually, no, today was the first day all week when I had time to eat lunch, to sit down and eat my lunch uninterrupted. Your phone does not stop ringing when you're working <laughs> in the hospital. That's just like a given. Uh, Nico, had you read the book before? No. So um, Had it been recommended to you as a med student? So it had come up twice before. Um, I think once there was a geriatrician who had given us a lecture or something in the hospital and it came up and she said she clearly told us do not read this book it is not a good book wow yeah okay <laughs> um but then i kind of connected it when i heard a friend talking about it and i realized that the two books were the same okay because you know I, I hadn't really thought about it and that friend actually really enjoyed it okay. and thought that there were some really key messages in there so kind of like chris is saying um that there are still points that ring true today. Um, and I, I tend to agree with that. I think overall, it's um, it's a funny book. I think you mentioned before about satire, and I think that's how it should be viewed as. 
if someone, let's say a medical student is taking this as their Bible of how things should work and how they should view medicine, I think that's completely wrong. I think like, like you've mentioned already, it's, there are definitely points in there that are, uh, completely outdated. Um, but exactly that there are still things in there that, uh, ring true. Yeah. Let's talk about women. Yeah. Uh, in the book, um, one of the covers for this book, which has been reprinted multiple times, so it has had different covers, uh, is of a male doctor wearing one of those old school head mirrors. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's like this this yeah. thick band of leather, yeah. and then there's a there's a round uh, yeah. mirror there. Do you know what the purpose of those were? Yeah. So this was before pen lights. Yeah. So if you wanted to shine light on yeah. the patient, you would get close to a like a desk lamp. Yeah. And you would bring this down to your eye. There was yeah. a hole in the center. Yeah. And then you would angle it so that it would reflect like the, light the light into yeah. the patient yeah, and you would look source. through it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. That's exactly <laughs> what purpose it serves. You, you, sort, of, you sort of wonder, couldn't they have like some sort of like light source that they could maneuver? Around? Like it didn't... Uh, <laughs> like a candle. Like open your mouth, Mrs. Yeah. Uh, Shapiro. Well, no, just a, a, a lamp. Just aim it at the person. Like right. I don't... I, don't I, yeah. I, I can't understand why people thought that was practical because... I don't, I, I don't know how old it was because I can imagine in like pre-electricity yeah, uh, days sure. with candlelight and daylight, you sure. would angle it so that, you know. I mean, we've had electricity for quite a while now. <laughs> I know. Though. I mean, I have a microscope at home that has yeah. no light source. It has a little mirror at the bottom. Oh, and you're wow. supposed to catch the light of the sun oh, onto okay. the slide to be able to see it. Well, that's why in a lot of very, very old hospitals, the surgical floors were at the top of the hospital because they would have right, like the skylight. skylights. And yeah. that's how they would see because, you know, and once it got dark, you stopped operating. Mm, yep. <laughs> We're losing the patient. We're losing the light, sir. <laughs> uh, so anyway, the point I was making is that on one of these early covers, there's a picture of a male doctor with the head mirror, and in the head mirror is a reflection of a naked woman. Yeah. Like slightly turned away yeah. from him and looking at yeah. him, and he has this look yeah. on his face of like, yeah, baby. Yeah. Um, I want to read a description of a nurse yeah. from page 39 of the book. All right. This, this should be good. Standing in the streaming July light was a nurse, the afternoon and evening nurse. She stood with her hands on her hips, reading the med cards, legs apart, rocking first one foot on its lateral edge and then the other. The sharp sunlight made her costume almost transparent, and her legs flowed in smooth lines from her thin ankles and calves all the way up to where all seams meet. She wore no slip, and through her starched white dress, I could see the bright patterns on her panties. She knew they would show through. Through her dress showed her bra strap with its pleading, unhookable hook. Her back was to us. Who could know about the front? I half wished she would never turn around, never spoil the imagined breasts the imagined face. She turned around. I gasped. I blushed. From her ruffled front, unbuttoned down past her clavicular knot, showing her cleavage to her fully tightly held breasts, from the red of her nail polish and lipstick to the blue of her lids and the black of her lashes and even the twinkly gold of the little cross from her Catholic nursing school. She was a rainbow in a waterfall. Yeah, that uh, that shit don't fly no more. <laughs> yeah. Um, so here's a problem with with women in the book. Women lack agency. Yeah. Right. They well, are. There's no female characters that have any role to play. There's Joe. 
Um, yeah, his girlfriend. No, no, not she's not the girlfriend. Joe is so 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 the the are the story arc of the book is yeah. that these are new inter- interns. So, yeah. What is the difference between an intern and a resident? So there's no real difference anymore. What used to happen is when you finished medical school, your first year was a general medical year where you rotated through all types of things, okay. and then later you went on to specialize in residency. Oh, so I see. an intern was like the first year of residency. The system has uh, changed somewhat now that we no longer have a rotating internship here. You finish medical school, you go directly into your residency. Uh-huh. The rationale was that you could, in theory, do a one-year rotating internship and then go off and practice independently. And then only if you wanted to specialize, uh-huh. would you go on and do a residency in cardiology, gastroenterology, surgical, whatever, mm-hmm. surgery, or, or whatever. But now you would do a residency in like family medicine. Well, that's it. So now there's a, medicine. yeah, so there's another residency. In, yeah, exactly. So the, 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 the structure of medical training has changed and the term intern doesn't really exist anymore, but it still gets used very often, mm-hmm. uh, somewhat inappropriately. I see. So in the book, Roy, who's our protagonist, who was describing the nurse, um, so he is a first year intern. So he just graduated from medical school. He's starting his internship with a bunch of other interns who are poorly characterized. Yeah. You don't really know who they are. They just have names. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they are supervised by this guy called the Fat the, Man. The fat man. <laughs> Because it was the 70s. Yeah. Uh, he's a senior resident, and his entire philosophy, and we'll touch upon this yeah. afterwards as well, is that you basically, medicine is like doing as little as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a variety of reasons. And so he inculcates in them all of these counterintuitive rules mm-hmm. about medicine. Then he goes away and he gets replaced by Joe. Yeah. And Joe is a woman. And Joe is this very... Uh, how how would you describe Joe? Like she's just a total workaholic. Yeah, she's she's this very cold, analytical workaholic. Uh, she's no fun. Uh, she's very rule bound. Mm-hmm. She has a copy of Principles of Internal Medicine like saddled in mm-hmm. in her in her belt, and she's like she's like no, we need to do everything in our power to treat these patients. So the whole thing about Roy is that he is conflicted because he gets all, he thinks, he comes out of medical school, he thinks he needs to do everything in his power to treat patients. Then he's told by the fat man, no, everything you learned in med school is wrong. Mm-hmm. Then fat man goes away and then Joe comes along and says, no, 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 you were right the first time around. Yeah. The fat man is a terrible person. Yeah. But at that point, the interns are convinced that no, the fat man was onto something. So what they start to do is as they start to pretend that they're treating the right. patients yeah. and so they write false orders they, yeah. they, they basically they, they write falsities on the charts to make Joe think that they're doing what she wants them to do but, but they're, they're not actually doing, doing yeah. anything and the patients survive longer yeah. and that's, that's the whole thing about the book uh, is that basically like the fat man was kind of right, right. yeah so all that to say that women lack agency in the yeah. book they are sexual objects to be leered at and fornicated with uh, he has a girlfriend yeah. in the book who's who was a, based on his wife or right. his future mm-hmm. wife, which I don't understand how she was okay with that book. <laughs> because he cheats on her constantly. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. He, he, he goes to see her once in a while. She's, she's studying psychiatry yeah. and she says a few things here and there. And then he goes, he goes to the hospital and he just leers and, yeah. and salivates over these women. And every nurse in the book is basically an excuse. She's, they're basically like playboy pinups. Yeah. Uh, to to have sex with and to idolize and to fantasize about, um, Nico, what what do you what did you think about the women in the book? I yeah, I think that was one of the main things that's uh, I think very outdated. Uh, yeah, so Joe's the only one, only female with a position of authority, and um, I think that's drastically changed compared to medicine today. 
um, from what uh, like the proportion of of females in my medical class, other other classes in terms of the staff doctors as well. Yeah. I think there's been a complete change um, in that. And well, even, it's true because end of like late 1970s, there still were not very many women in the mm-hmm. field of medicine compared to today. So yeah. I mean that yeah, you know, you know, the idea of a female superior was still a relatively quote unquote novel concept for mm-hmm. for for back then. Yeah, and even all the new interns, I think they're all male. They're all male. Yeah, which yeah. like that, you know, that surprises me when I read yeah. that it was it was like well, statistically, that would be almost impossible now because most yeah. medical school classes are, if not fifty fifty, actually have no, a actually, female predominance. Yeah, actually, I think they're they're know. close around sixty sixty five percent female. Yeah. And when we say male and female, it's not to dehumanize people, but because we have strong biology backgrounds. That's right. That's how we we categorize people in very scientific terms. Um, There there have been a few sequels to the book, actually. Uh, And and Shem wrote one called Man's Fourth Best Hospital, which came out a few months ago, I believe. And from that same New Yorker piece by Dr. Rachel Pearson, she says that not much has changed from that perspective because Mm. the book is a sequel. So Roy... In, in the sequel, he has written House of God. Yeah. Uh, so he's even closer to Samuel Shem himself yeah. uh, in the book. And he's now in his 70s, I think. But she writes that even in that new book, which should have a better, um, a more respectful view of women, you know, she mm. says, quote, men are strong and zany and haha funny. Women are sensitive and moral and wise, happy either to bed the men or to mother them. Yeah. So, you know, has he has he learned anything on that front? Maybe not. It's debatable. Uh, I want to talk about the patients, how the mm. patients are portrayed in the book. Um, because they're 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 not portrayed very well. Nope. Um, it's not it's very all. dehumanizing. There some people have argued that the reason why the patients are seen through this again very dehumanizing and cruel lens in the book is that the interns are corrupted by their internship, mm-hmm. that they are told to view these patients as burdens, mm-hmm. as you know, demented bodies in waiting. But here's the problem, is that on the very first day of, of Roy's internship, uh, he refers to a patient as a heifer. Yeah. And so that language is right there in the right beginning. Right there in the beginning, yeah. And so right from the beginning, he does not seem to take kindly to these patients, and he sees them as animals. In fact, there is there is a whole bit in the book at the very beginning where he he sees the the the, the patient rooms as as like a zoo, and he starts describing patients as as animals. I started to panic, and then finally the cries coming from the various rooms saved me. All of a sudden, I thought, zoo. This was a zoo, and these patients were the animals. A little old man with a tuft of white hair, standing on one leg with a crutch and making sharp, worried chirps, was an egret. And a huge Polish woman of the peasant variety with sledgehammer hands and two lower molars protruding from her cavernous mouth became a hippo. Many different species of monkey appeared, and sows were represented in force. In my zoo, however, neither were there any majestic lions, nor any cuddly koalas, or bunnies, or swans. Two stand out. First, a heifer named Sophie, who'd been admitted by her private doctor with a chief complaint of, I'm depressed, I've got headaches all the time. For some reason, her private, Dr. Putzel, had ordered the complete gastrointestinal workup, consisting of barium enema, upper GI series, small bowel follow-through, sigmoidoscopy, and liver scan. 
I didn't know what this had to do with depression and headache. I entered her room and found the old lady with a balding little man who was sitting on her bed patting her hand affectionately. How sweet, I thought. Her son has come to visit. It was not her son. It was Dr. Bob Putzel, whom Fats described as the handholder from the suburbs. I introduced myself, and when I asked Putzel about the reason for the GI workup for depression, he looked sheepish, straightened his bow tie, murmured flatulence, and, kissing Sophie, hurried out. Confused, I called in the fat man. What is it with this GI workup? I asked. She says she's depressed and has a headache. It's a specialty of the house, said Fats. The bowel run, TTB, therapeutic trial of barium. There's nothing therapeutic about barium, it's inert. Of course it is, but the bowel run is a great equalizer. You know that new building, the Wing Azak? Know what it's for? The bowel run of the rich. Carpets, individual changing rooms, and radiology with color TV and quadraphonic sound. There's a lot of money in shit. There's uh, there's an anagram that we, we learn about, um, an LOL and NAD, uh, which is a little mm, old lady in no apparent distress. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, so so all, the, the, the fat man inculcates these interns in this lingo of, of how to categorize different types of patients. And so there's an LOL and NAD. She's a little old lady. She's got nothing wrong with her. They give her a barium enema. Mm-hmm. Uh, a whole gastrointestinal workup. So basically, they do a risky procedure on a healthy patient as a placebo. Yeah. Would that be done nowadays? Well, uh, well I, I hope not. Uh, <laughs> certainly not. I mean, that being said, here's the thing. The problem, the what you raised, so this idea of dehumanizing the patients, I think it does still sort of happen. Residency really messes with you on a fundamental (laughs) level Uh and the hope is that you're going to come out of it and regain some aspect of your humanity there's a great thing that i'm so excited yeah you really should (laughs) one of my uh former professors said this is like when you apply to medical school they want you to be well-rounded and they love people who have a background in the arts and who are in music and i do all these activities they want you to have all these diverse things and then you get into medical school residency and they beat the conformity into you they mm-hmm. try to, they, they work, like, they, they want to, like, deprive you of any type of, like, it is not good to be too different in residency. It's like, you know, there's guidelines, you know, this is how we do things, mm-hmm. you know, if you complain and you used to be like, couldn't we do it this way in the hospital? That, ooh, that is not going to make you any friends. Right. They don't like it when people point out flaws in the system. Right. Um, so they want this huge diversity and, like, difference of opinion and eclecticness, and then they homogenize you into, like, you know, into conformity. And then as you come out of it, and then, you know, the first, like, few decades of your career, you're, like, working hard because you got to pay off all your student debts. In Canada, it's less of an issue. But, you know, then you're trying to make your career. And then you get towards the end of your career, and all of a sudden, you find yourself with all this free time, and you start, like, I had one professor. He's like, yeah, I'm taking a sabbatical, so I'm going to go paint in Spain. And, you know, you go off, and you start doing all these things again. <laughs> right. And it's like, there's this You recover bizarre, your humanity. You recover your humanity. And, um, I mean, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is, like, the insane working hours. Uh, the other two is, like, you're seeing people at their very worst. Yeah. Um, you know, young people tend not to get sick. It's older people who get sick. So the patients, and especially now, even more so in the late 70s, the patients are older. The patients are sicker. They have multiple things wrong mm. with them. They don't just have one thing wrong with them. And you often can't do very much for them. So... It is incredibly depressing, and it can take a lot out of you. And if you approach it with the wrong mindset, 
I've seen it break people, like not break people to the point where they're like, you know, on the ground crying, shivering and like giving up all their military secrets. But it breaks you in the sense that you lose the sense of joy that you had right. when you got into medical school. And you no longer enjoy it. I see people at the hospital who are just angry, who are just like, who hate their existence. Hmm. And it's a tough job. I just worked a 12-hour day, and I came back here to record a podcast, right? <laughs> yes. If you don't approach... And I got very frustrated today for a number of reasons we're not going to get into. <laughs> exactly. But this is not therapy, Chris. It's, it's, it, it, <laughs> I can see how it would break you. And it's like it, it can be a very dehumanizing process. And the patients are like demanding all this of you. And at a certain point, you don't have anything left to give. You're like, listen, I get that you're alone in the world, that you don't have any kids, your your spouse died several years ago, that you're alone, that you can't walk. I, but I can't fix these problems either. Mm-hmm. Like I can't drive you to your doctor's appointments. We It would be great if we had a social services system that would do that sort yeah. of thing. And to a certain extent, to be fair in, in Quebec, at least, we do to a certain extent, although accessing it can be difficult. But you know, there are certain things you can do as a doctor and you realize that you can't solve a lot of the problems people have because they're not really medical problems, they're social problems and learning how to care and try to help without letting it, without letting the despair get the best of you. Mm-hmm. Nico, you're regretting your decision to go to med school? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Um, I, I do agree with what uh, with what Chris is saying. Um, and I think to go back sort of to the original point, it's really the I think it's the system and the way um, the way residency is and the, the time and the workload and everything that creates this um, isolation. And then you kind of touched upon depression, too. Mm. Um, and I think there are. I can't quote any numbers, but I think there are higher rates of depression and oh, yeah. suicide in. Well, there is. I mean, this is a real issue. Physicians. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody and from my, so, uh, somebody from not from my medical school. Sorry, from one year be- before us committed suicide. And that, and yeah. that's in the book. One yeah. of the interns mm-hmm. commits suicide yeah. um, after you know treating a patient doesn't really go well, <clears throat> and he, he's sort of haunted by this idea that he should have done yeah. something sooner, and then he just commits suicide. Yeah. There are a number of laws in the yeah. book. Uh, in fact, it might be the thing that most people remember yeah. from the book that the fat man gives all of these lessons mm-hmm. in the form of laws of the house of God. And they're all listed, I think, at the back of the book. And some of these laws, I mean, I was, and we'll come back to Scrubs as well, the TV yeah. show Scrubs. But I mean, some of this lingo is even in the pilot episode of Scrubs. Yeah. So I want to get your impression of uh, of these laws, uh, if they ring true, if if you still have heard them in yeah. the healthcare system, law number one is Gomers don't die. Yeah. So what is a Gomer? Gomer is an acronym of get out of my emergency room. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a patient who is frequently admitted with complicated but uninspiring and incurable conditions. Yeah. It's crazy, I said. It's doing medicine the house of God way. So what can I do about it? Start by not talking to her. If you talk to these patients, you'll never get rid of them. Then sick your BMS on her, she'll hate that. Is she a gomer? Does she act human? Of course she does. She's a nice old lady. Right, LOL and NAD. Not a gomer, but you're sure to have a gomer on your service. Here, let's see, Rakitansky. Come on. To all my questions, his answer was always the same. I felt sad. A professor, now a vegetable. Again, I thought of my grandfather and got a lump in my throat. 
Turning to Fats, I said, This is too sad. He he's going to die. No, he's not, said Fats. He wants to, but he won't. He can't go on like this. Sure he can. Listen, Bosh. There are a number of laws of the house of God. Law number one, gomers don't die. That's ridiculous. Of course they die. I've never seen it in a whole year here. They have to. They don't. They go on and on. Young people like you and me die, but not the gomers. Never seen it. Not once. Does that, does any of that ring true to you guys? I mean, it, it's it's sort of based in truth. There are patients. Who it is these, satire. Yeah, it is yeah. satire. I mean, there are patients with chronic conditions that are just repeat visitors. Like there are patients who will Frequent have like flyers. yeah, ten admissions per year to hospital for the same thing over and over again, and you just you, know, you can't do anything for them. You treat them, you fix them up, you send them home, and they come back. So it it reflects one of the frustrations of the medical system where you're not fixing these people. You're just sort of patching them up and letting them come back again and. You know, it's there's nothing you can do about it. You know, they're they're fine when they leave the hospital, and then three months later, they're just not fine anymore. So I've only been in clerkship, uh, so the time we spend in the hospital for about eight months now. Yeah, and I've only, I mean, I've had uh, early on, I had one patient of mine who passed away, yeah. and he was actually a patient with dementia. And so I think that, at least to me, does not ring true at all. Mm. So I haven't had that as much experience and the the long term view. But uh, so, yeah, that that patient, especially, you know, we treated him with with uh, it was it was like palliative care towards mm. the end. Um, Law number three at a cardiac arrest. Mm. The first procedure is to take your own pulse. So people often say that uh, uh -huh. and it is based in truth. The one thing you don't want to do is you don't want to panic. Right. Uh, cardiac arrests, of which I've been part of many, many over the years, um, they can be very chaotic episodes. Mm -hmm. And when you lose your head. And when communication breaks down, that's when it starts to go badly. So that's reflective of the first thing you do. The person running a cardiac arrest should be standing back, should be out of the sort of chaos maelstrom that's floating around the patient and should be directing things. The best depiction of how to run a cardiac arrest ever? Scrubs. Not scrubs, actually. <laughs> ER. No, no, no. ER was not bad for the mechanics uh -huh. of how... I mean, the problem is with ERs, they did the music going in the background, yes, it right? Yes, traumatizes but, yeah. everything. Uh, but the way they actually performed was actually pretty close to accurate. All hmm. things that, no, but the best uh, representation of a cardiac arrest or the most, the most well-done cardiac arrest that I've ever seen was from a TV show called The Fall with Gillian oh, Anderson yeah, okay. and the Jamie Dornan. Yes. I have uh, no idea what they're talking about. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I watched the first episode and I was bored to tears. I moved on. It's no, it's a very complex show. Mm -hmm. Jamie Dornan, who was later in Fifty Shades, Shades of Grey, yeah. delivers a fantastic performance. Surprising. I, mean, I, I thought Fifty Shades of Grey. Well, that's right. Yeah. That's why. So people like well, it's sort of like James Patterson from The Twilight, right? Everybody makes fun of him. But he's actually a very good actor. He's done like some incredible. Robert, Robert, Patterson. Robert Patterson. James Patterson died. Did he die recently? Or my mm. there's Clive Cussler. James Patterson was also a novelist. Yeah. Anyway, we're getting, anyways, yes. Um, I, there's one the scene uh -huh. uh, where I, I won't in case anybody's watching, I'm not gonna spoil it. But a character gets shot and is run to the emergency room, and then the it's the ICU doctor running the call, which is a little bit atypical. But he's sitting there and he's like talking, and he has a resident, and the resident's trying to intubate, and he's like, "Tell me what you can see." He's like, "Can you see the cords?" He's like, "I think so." You think or you can? And he's like talking to her, <laughs> right. so he's doing teaching, he's teaching yeah. and he's ready to step in just in case she can't do it. But then she does it, and he steps back, and it was like the huh. most whoever wrote that episode oh. obviously had medical training because it was like it's the only thing you could get with first-hand knowledge so the point is is that if you're running a code 
you should and the, the what I loved about it is like this ICU doctor was standing back with his arms crossed watching everybody and telling people what to do and he was telling other people to do stuff he wasn't on the gurney pumping no. the chest and, no, no exactly right the person on the gurney pumping the chest should probably be one of the PABs or one of the orderlies mm-hmm. uh, you know you can have one doctor intubating handling the airway one doctor handling the drugs right. but you should be one person in charge standing back doing nothing being completely calm and so uh you want to grab that coat chris yeah, there's an ambulance just outside <laughs> business uh business coming in um yeah so the, the idea of that the first thing, and i've heard people say that to trainees all the time the first thing you should do is take your own pulse because it means when you see a code don't panic right think and but, that's what the, that's but, what makes a good but don't code. take 30 seconds to actually take your don't pulse. take 30 seconds to actually take your own pulse calm down and then approach the situation right. and remember your training. Number nine, yeah. the only good admission is a dead admission. Yeah, that's very morbid. <laughs> yes, uh, it is. Um, you know, again, it's it's reflective of the despair that the characters go through. We're like, nothing we do matters. Why are we wasting our time? Why are we sacrificing the living to save the dead? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's this type of mentality that I think a lot of people do suffer from, like, because there's a lot of futility to medicine. Mm. And I would even argue... I was gonna. I was almost about to say that there's almost more futility now than back then, and I'm not sure that's true because I think we've made a lot of medical advances. Yes, but we see a lot of older, more complex patients where yeah. it's like, what are we doing here? Mm-hmm. You know, like what are we doing? Like this patient has like severe renal failure, you know, horrible diabetes. These like, kinds of patients would have died in the seventies. They would have died, in, like they mm-hmm. wouldn't have made it to nine. Like now, now it's regular thing to be treating nine year olds, and you're like. Are we really going to send the nine-year-old for open heart surgery? And like, yeah. and and your first reaction is, "Oh my God, that's crazy," but then your second reaction is, "But they're otherwise okay. Like they might be fine." And you have this, you have to have this bizarre discussion yourself. It's like, is what I'm doing <laughs> crazy, or is it? And like you were like at one point you're worried about like doing too much, and then at the other end you're worried about ages, and where you're like, "Am I just not giving this patient the best quality care because they happen to be old?" Mm-hmm. So it's um. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff that is goes on when you th- think of the medical field now. These days. Rule number 13, the delivery of good medical care is to do as much nothing as possible. So, and I think Actually, one of the, so yeah. wh- why I think the book still resonates mm-hmm. is because of this idea of less is more. Right. We've been choosing talking. Wisely. Choosing wisely. I mean, the JAMA has a whole a series of articles called Less is More where they do this sort of thing of like, you know, don't over-treat people. Um, because over-treating people is expensive. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, slowly bankrupting the U.S. healthcare system to a lesser extent here in Canada. But, you know, there is some truth to that, that just because you can do a test doesn't mean you should do it. Just because you can do a treatment doesn't mean you should do it. And I think the 70s was the beginning of like, okay, there's a lot of futility there's a, there's a lot of stuff that we just can't fix, but there's a lot of stuff that we have that just doesn't work, and maybe we shouldn't be applying it routinely just because. And there's a lot of stuff that we no longer do because... It won't change it anything. It won't change anything. Won't the change best example... Person, yeah. I'm, I'm actually curious. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever seen somebody... Well, I don't know if you've done it. Have you ever seen a Swan-Gans catheter used in medicine? Do you even know what that is? 
Oh, putting me on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> um, you might we'll, not. We'll send this episode to your supervisor. Exactly. No, I've definitely heard it. Uh, yeah. Remind me, though, because maybe I have. It's the I've thing. I've actually heard that name before yeah, I didn't I go to med school. It's a catheter with a balloon uh, at the end of it. And what you do is you float it down somebody's internal jugular vein to go uh, through the right atrium, right ventricle into the pulmonary artery. And then it sits there. Oh. And you can measure continuous pressures in the heart. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen it. But... Yeah. So it used to be done. Routinely. Right, routinely, if you were in the ICU, you would. Everyone was given a swan because you're measuring directly pressures in the heart, and that made sense. Um, but then it turns out that if you don't put it in, it doesn't actually change anything, because usually what's wrong with the patient is pretty clear. Like if the patient had a massive hemorrhage, you know what the problem is. Yeah, you're they not don't gaining got, new information. Yeah, that's right. You're not. Mm. You know, they don't have enough blood. You got to. <laughs> you got to put the inside stuff back inside of them, <laughs> as we learned from the resident. Episode one, remember? <laughs> I, I, I scrubbed that from my memory. Ah, <laughs> uh, what a show. Uh, what residents. a show. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think that rule actually still has some... I mean, again, it's satire, mm-hmm. some truth to it, but, you know, sometimes you don't want to do too much, especially now, again, to go back to... If you're dealing with elderly patients, maybe you don't want to take the most invasive option. Maybe you want to treat them medically and often they're probably going to do okay. So, mm. you know, like I'll give you a cardiology example. When patients come in with a heart attack, one of the things that we do is we go in and do an angioplasty. We go in and unblock the artery. But if you're in your 80s and 90s, maybe doing an angioplasty isn't the best course of action. Maybe you want to just treat somebody with medicine. And the truth is, most people are going to be okay if you do that. Because they so don't have 40 years ahead of them. They don't have 40 years ahead of them, right? So, you know, sometimes less is more. Let's talk about the turf and buff. Ah, the buff turf. and turf. Have you ever heard that one? Turf and buff? No. Really? The bounce, like bounce Times back. Times change. Back. Yeah. Definitely, but not uh, not turf and buff. Turf and Which buff. I also don't think are sort of applicable. Like we mentioned before about the residents kind of doing nothing but writing in the charts that they were. Mm-hmm. I saw that especially as how how on earth could that happen Yeah, today? how could that, that, that yeah, that, it, practically so, that couldn't happen today, like really. So turfing is to get rid of, to get yeah. off your service and onto another or out of the house altogether. It's a key concept as the main form of treatment in medicine, the fat man says. So you want to get rid of your patients. Yeah. That's the key. Yeah. No, that's, so you turf yeah. them to other departments so that they can deal with them. So, <laughs> funny story. Yes. Um, so listen, the, the idea of turnover is very true. You don't want people to just languish sure. on the ward. You want to mm-hmm. get them... Because it's a problem. We have a bed shortage. I mean, especially here in Montreal, we don't have enough physical space for all the patients who need beds. That's why people end up staying in the emergency room for like three or four days. Right. Anyway, so the point is you want to get people to leave the hospital as much as possible. So as residents, uh, at the end of the month, we used to have to compile all our stats and do the morbidity and mortality reports. And we would see, like, how many patients had to be discharged. And, you know, it turned into this almost like this competition, like who could discharge the most patients? Um, because there is, this, there is this pressure because if patients don't leave, you can't bring in new patients up from the emergency room. And then one month, one of the residents, for whatever reason, turned off his brain and like the usual uh numbers where in a month we would have we would usually discharge somewhere above 100 patients that was the standard um on a 30 patient bed thing so the each bed would turn over three times Mm -hmm. over the course of a month which is about average and so that was the thing and the joke was if you do under 100 patients you're really not working hard and then at one point he did like 46 patients in one month and we were like what happened (laughs) and he was like i don't know the thing so um but it's the idea of the buff and turf. We very rarely have transfers between services, but I did see it 
often enough between medicine and surgery. Like mm. surgical patients, this patient's not surgical. We can't operate on them. We're right. gonna get them mm. to medicine. And it's like, we need the beds more. And it's like, no, we need our beds more. Like, you know, it's like when you have these patients that are clearly never going to go home. Mm. We had other uh, um, uh, terminology that we used to use. We used to talk about patients like growing roots because they wouldn't like ever leave the hospital. <laughs> right. Which is not from the book. I don't know where that came from. But this idea of you have to try to sell the patient to another service to take them. Like if they're surgical, you got to make them look good to surgery. So and they that's can take buffing, them. right? That's buffing. It's You're just, making the patient. You yeah. got to like sell it. Yeah. Or for the ICUs, like, look, this patient's really sick. We need to take them. Again, it's satire. It's never as sort of overt and deceptive as that is. But there's a there's a certain drive. It's like, listen, if you want something, you got to push for it because somebody else is pushing back. I agree. And yeah. Uh, yeah, so before I got into the hospital, I had no idea how much, well, not that it's like a huge amount, but how much of the time and sort of energy goes into exactly what you're saying, bed management. Yeah. And um, whether it's like like rotating the beds and discharging and bringing in the new patients from the eMERGE or like you're saying about uh, transferring to other services or even like transferring to a rehab center yeah. or uh, stuff like that. And, you know, you need to you need to make sure that you're applying before to make sure that they get out on time so that like you're saying that the patients aren't just sitting there while they could be in a different center. So I was surprised at how much of our time was spent dealing with yeah. those issues. Let me ask a question. How much time do you think medical residents spend doing medicine as opposed to doing like bureaucratic stuff? <laughs> I don't know what the firm answer is, but I'll right. give you what my best estimate is. I suspect that medicine is 30% and 70% is admin. That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> like when you have residents, like when you have resident medical students, mm -hmm. when you say, man, that resident, that student, he was really good. The reason you say that is they filled out all the right forms. They did their <laughs> right. discharge summaries on time. They got scans quickly because they went to radiology and like cajoled the radiology techs. Because, you know, remember when we did our special episode on uh, science as a human enterprise, we went through numbers for PhDs, for yeah. professors, and the time that they spend doing, yeah. you know, experiments versus doing... And it was like a similar kind of ratio. Yeah, like it's yeah. mostly filling yeah. out forms and it's like that everywhere. Walking through the elevator with a fat man, I said, You know, I think these gomers are trying to hurt me. Of course they are. They try to hurt everyone. What difference does that make? I, I never did anything to hurt them, and they're trying to hurt me. Exactly. That's modern medicine. You're, you're crazy. You have to be crazy to do this. But if this is all there is, I, I can't take it. No way. Of course you can, Roy. Trash your illusions, and the world will beat a pathway to your door. And he was gone. I watched the movie, yeah. uh, the house had the House of God. It was never released in theaters yeah. or on VHS or DVD apparently, but it was shown on HBO during non-peak hours. It kind of got rid of it this way, um, right after Game of Thrones. Well, no, I mean, <laughs> it got shown in the, in the '90s, way before Game of Thrones, uh, back when there were very few HBO subscriptions. Uh, HBO was basically a movie channel. Yeah, uh, this might have been like pre-Oz, which was their first original scripted show. The guy who plays Roy uh, in the movie is Tim Matheson, who was playing the vice president on The West Wing. Oh. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a much, yeah. much younger. Uh, James Cromwell is one of the cops. Really? Yeah. Oh, the cops who's the like... The Irish cops. The oh. Irish cops. <laughs> Did you eat your Lucky Charms today? <laughs> it's the, in, the, in the movie, like the accents are... Because it's in Boston. Yeah. And so the accents are very thick. They're almost leprechauns. I mean, they're very, very Irish. Uh, Gilbert Gottfried has really? a blink and you'll miss it cameo as a wow. paramedic okay. during one of the christmas scenes yeah. 
you you kind of recognize his voice. I mean, it's not quite as nasal and yeah. as annoying as it is now because it was much younger. But you look in the credits, Gilbert Gottfried as a paramedic. Uh, the music was by Basil Poletaris, uh, who was a fairly famous Greek composer. Mm-hmm. He did Robocop, he did uh, Lonesome Dove, Conan yeah. the Barbarian. Uh, he wrote this very Baroque kind of yeah. music for the House of God. Uh, and the guy who plays the fat man kind of looks like Jeff Daniels in Dumb and Dumber, but with 40 extra pounds. Yeah. <laughs> or Robin Williams looking disheveled. Yeah. Uh, it's, 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 it's actually it's a good performance. Um, and in the movie, I mean, again, older patients are portrayed as demented, they're burdensome, they're inhuman. The flirtations are toned way down. Mm. Uh, there's very little sex. Mm. There's no Roy doesn't have a girlfriend in the movie. Oh, interesting. And it's a lot more romantic because uh, yeah. he falls for one of the nurses yeah. and there's this recorder music being played and it's all very chaste and yeah. all very flirtatious. <laughs> um, but there is one scene that is kind of out there where an intern a male intern removes a female pathologist's gown, revealing her fully naked body. Okay. She's just wearing the gown. And why, he... Why? why? <laughs> because he's into her. And then, but no, but why was she not wearing... Like, I don't understand. Unexplained. <laughs> unexplained, okay. They're literally above There's a corpse. There's very little casual nudity in the hospital. I yeah, will, not, I not very sterile. So they're in the pathology room. They're hovering over a body that they're about to open up. Yeah. And he just removes her gown. She's completely naked. You see everything. Yeah. He then disrobes in front of her. He's also naked underneath. And they start making out over the corpse. Oof. What? That happens. Was that in the book? No, <laughs> no. not at all. No? Okay. no, no. I mean, there's a lot in the book yeah. uh, on the sex front, yeah. but that as that's as bad as it got in the movie, and it's kind of kind of a weird scene. Yeah. Uh, the suicide is in there. Uh, Roy, and because I, I, I didn't get that far in the book, Roy threatens to forcibly euthanize Joe one day. Was that in the book? Nope. Okay. Yeah, but I don't remember that. He does um, basically euthanize a patient. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, so maybe that's where they tie that into. Yeah. I see. Yeah. So basically, he threatens his supervisor mm-hmm. of euthanizing her one day. Okay. And then she takes this to the chief of medicine, and they have this big meeting in which she is disbelieved because she's yeah. a woman. Okay. And so she couldn't possibly be telling the truth. All right. Uh, wow. And then at, toward the end of the movie, Roy says that he's quitting medicine. Yeah. But then uh, cop Lucky Charms comes in. There's been a big incident. Yeah. And we're treated to basically an ER segment where Roy uh, kind of saves the cop's life on the gurney. And then he kind of falls back in love with Madison. And that's the end. And roll roll the credits. The book is not not like that. (laughs) Very different from the book, right? So I I, want to talk a little bit about the good from the book. And we've touched upon some of this. when the book came out, it was censored by medical school deans. Yeah. Uh, it was maligned by older doctors. Um, and over the years, uh, Samuel Shem, or actually you know, the, 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 the real guy behind the, behind the, the pseudonym, uh, started giving a talk called Staying Human in Healthcare. Yeah. And he's talking a lot now about the healing power of a good connection. Uh, he sees his novel as a way to resist the injustices of the system because apparently the point that he was trying to make was that the internship of these med students is terrible and it turns them into really bad people. Which is, that's not quite what I got from the part of the book that I that I read. I think that's what he wanted to get across. I'm not sure he actually accomplished it. But I think right. that was the goal or maybe that's, in retrospect, what he's convinced himself the goal was. I don't right. know. I mean, I think there is something to that because here's the thing. So, Nico, you'll you'll see this as you go. 
what ma- you have to you obviously have to have a certain basic level of competence, right? You can't give antibiotics so. to people who are having, you know, chest pain. You know, there's you have to <laughs> you know can't. the basics. You have to know the basics, okay? <laughs> right. But especially nowadays when medicine is for good or ill, very protocolized, very guideline based, you can look up what you're supposed to do in any given situation. Mm-hmm. And you're usually looking at a computer screen anyway, yeah. so it's yeah. kind of easy yeah. to do that. But no, like sometimes you get a patient, you're like, oh, what are the guys? I had to look stuff up. Like this week, I had to look stuff up. I was like, wait, what is the number of weeks we're supposed to wait anticoagulate a patient before you cardiovert them? Let me look that up. It's three weeks, right? Yeah, three weeks. Because, you know, you look and that's, stuff up. And that's good because it used to be, it was up to you and your experience as a yeah. clinician, which could be wrong. And that's now right. it's it's the best data available from clinical trials. That's right. From, that's know, right. But, and again, and again, and so... The, the the marker of good of a good doctor is not intelligence. Mm. It's judgment. Yeah. So okay. you have to have a judgment. You have to be able to look at a person and be like, you know what? I don't think this is the right course of action. You have to be like, no, we're going to do the invasive or the non-invasive. Or you have to be like, I know you're what you're just if you're describing like a vague stomachy chest pain after you eat food, right. that sounds like an ulcer more than cardiac, right? So you have to have judgment. And that's not intelligence. You just have to, you know, you have to be able to listen to people. But the other thing that people really care about is you have to be nice. Mm-hmm. And if you're nice to patients, if you're friendly, if you're joking, they really like that. It really calms people down. The problem is a lot of doctors are just not nice. Yeah. And it's because, and this happens to me too, you're stressed, you're tired, you get frustrated. Like you want to practice medicine and you spend half your time or even more than half your time doing paperwork. I've had patients come in and patients are angry because they're sick. I've had patients come in and like, where are my test results? I'm like, I don't know. And they're like, what do you mean? And they would get angry. I'm like, Sir, I don't know what to tell you. I don't have your test results. Mm-hmm. Like they didn't come, they, the hospital didn't send it to me. And I used to get angry with that as well. They're like, because when somebody's yelling at you, your first thing then is to yell back. So, sure, yeah. and that's what I think this book is trying to get at is that the process of medical training can be dehumanizing because you're just working these long hours, you're overworked, you're overtired. And the first thing that happens when you're tired, you start snapping at people. And so you have to find, and I don't know what the solution to this is, and I don't know how I did it or whether if I did it, but you have to be able to snap out of it and be like, look, the system is to various degrees broken. It's not your job to fix it. You just have to be like, what's the, what's the, what's the analogy? You just have to be like the guy like whistling on the desk of the uh, deck of the Titanic or whatever. Well, the, the people the, who stayed behind to play the music yeah, on the Titanic. Yeah, you just, was, have to be, you just have to be the guy on the boat just like right. playing the music. And like, listen, this, like, listen a, a lot of bad stuff is happening. You might as well enjoy the, you might as well have some good tunes while you go down. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's not your job to fix the world. It's right. your job to deal with the patient in front of you and if the patient in front of you is like giving you a hard time then you know you fake a page you walk out of the room and you come back five <laughs> minutes later and wonder I guarantee you every doctor has done that like excuse me sir I have to go check something in the room right. you walk out you wait five minutes you're like okay let's guy calm down because it's it's and I think that's what the book is trying to it's, get at. It's, it's human the, relations. It's at the end human of relations, yeah. which yeah. is not a question of intelligence. And it, it really can't be taught. I don't mm. think you can really teach that. You can only try to inculcate it in people by leading by example. But the problem right. is so many physicians are just so busy and so overworked. And, and to a certain extent, it's they brought it on themselves with the way they've organized their work. And most people don't realize they have the power to change things. But, you know, you have to be, be like... You, you have to be human with the patients and that's what they want and that's where 
I think at least for the past 40 years, that's what House of God tried to say and what a lot of medical schools are trying to say now is that they have to try to infuse the humanity into people. How do you do that? Whether it succeeds, I don't know. I think a lot of it is just not working people like dogs and like, you know, 100-hour shifts or 100 mm-hmm. hours per week where, um, yeah. But then we get into the interesting thing where this says like, you know, back in my day, we worked uh, 24-hour <laughs> shifts and we were fine. And these medical students these days, they want to be... I had a story. I was at a dinner party. <laughs> Go for it. His colleague was like, this, this medical student came to us. And he's like, I can't go. I, you know, the, the end of rotation exam was on a particular day. And he's like, I can't because I have a family commitment. Um, can I do the exam on a different day? And they were like scandalized. Because <laughs> it meant that you have to write a second exam, which I understand is a pain right. for one person. But at the end, was their request like so unthinkable? Like, yes. And again, you would applaud the person who is so committed to medicine that they'd be like, no, I can't make it to that, you know, dinner because I have to go there. But it's like there was an important family event out of town. Is that the worst thing in the world? Like, can we not let people be human beings like i mean there's a happy medium right like you know some people are like i can't come into work tomorrow i have to take my dog to the vet and you're like well maybe that was a step too far you know maybe got to push it back a little bit but something happened a few years ago with one of the previous health ministers i won't say who but i made a comment like you know these doctors these days they don't work as long hours anymore they just want to like Ooh. stay home and take care of their families and it's like <laughs> there's nothing wrong is with that a crime care. well and again you know that person didn't say female doctors but that was clearly mm-hmm. the implied of the message but like also there's nothing wrong with wanting to take care of your children you know there's there's maybe something wrong with working a 12-hour day and not being there to raise your children at all for the first formative you know first in the formative years of their life so but this idea of you know back in my day eh, another funny story yeah I, th- I think nico wants to say something go for well. it nico go I'll tell you. <laughs> no but you, you as as you were talking there were yeah. a couple of things that came up yeah. um i think in the afterward uh, the author mentions about the uh the connection aspect and like you're saying that he didn't quite get across in the book and i more or less agree but once you have that at like once you once you hear that and you look back on it i can understand where he's coming from yeah. And it deals with, I think, at least connection with the patients, which is what sort of we were talking about and yeah. that empathy and the, the exactly the connection you have with the patients, but also connection, I think, with others. And he talks about a support system and to not be isolated. Yeah. And I think that that was um, something that I've realized um, going through clerkship now, which I know isn't as yeah. difficult as residency. But um, I have two roommates who are also in med- medical school and just to be able to go home and talk with them and either make jokes or to, you know, discuss something that happened, it really helps. And so I think that's um, something really important that you you might be able to take away from the book is that he, like the, the protagonist becomes isolated. Yeah. And that also yeah. um, leads to to all the other things. Well, and one of the things in the book is that the, the resident who ultimately commits suicide, mm-hmm. he actually makes a point where they were often leaving him out of the social exactly. events. Because mm-hmm. when he was on call, he and his friend would go out and then they wouldn't go out when they were on call. So they, and they made him even more isolated. And he's the one that right. takes his life. So the isolation is, I think, is, is, is a big point as yeah. well. Which is created, though, like you're saying, by the system and by the overworking yeah. and the long hours and all that. And often, I mean, a lot of what happens in the hospital is not collegial. There's a lot of, like, not conflict, but there are a lot of, like, friction between different mm-hmm. services and different staff. People are fighting, you know. 
Um, and it's not all the hospitals. Like where I'm working now, we have a pretty good collegial system. People understand each other. Um, but and it might be in your department, yeah. but in, not in a different department. Because I've worked with, yeah. I'm not going to name yeah. them, but like there was one department where none of the surgeons spoke to each other. Yeah. And the person who was in charge of the department was this hated individual yeah. Yeah. who was terrible at running. Yeah. So every person, you had to approach them individually because they didn't talk to yeah. each other. And then there was another department right next to them where it was fantastic. Everything yeah. it was a well-oiled machine because the guy who was in charge of it was doing a fantastic job and they had regular meetings, it was yeah. communication. So from one department to the next, you never know. No, you never know. And it makes a huge difference in people's quality of life. If you enjoy the people you work with, you have fun at work. Yeah. And when you have one person who's difficult and tries to sue their colleagues, <laughs> which has happened, uh, it becomes unpleasant. What, uh, how would you compare Chris uh, the House of God and the TV show Scrubs. Um, so I will say, so I, I mean, I said I did not like the book, The House of God. Mm-hmm. I really love the TV show Scrubs. I think the TV show Scrubs is one of the best medical TV shows for its authenticity. Mm-hmm. It's a comedy. Yes. It's zany. Yes. It's also satire in its way. Yeah, yeah. But the the spirit behind it is actually much more faithful than, for example, a show like ER. Now, ER was factually very accurate. And even Noah Wiley said that by the end of his like 11-year run, I don't know how many years he was on the show. He was on it for like 11 yeah. years. He's like, I feel like I could probably treat patients in a hospital. Like, I feel like I picked up enough of what to do, you know? <laughs> right. But there was one ER doctor who, giving an interview, had said, you know, the, the, the problem with ER was they took the most important thing, the, the, they took the most interesting thing I've ever seen in my career and put three of them in one episode. Yeah. So I everybody had this like weird stuff and they're all making crazy diagnosis yeah. thing. A lot of what you do in medicine is like very mundane. Mm-hmm. A lot of what you do in medicine is very routine. And I think Scrubs was the best show because when you watch it from the beginning to the end where you start as resident, it's the sheer blind panic when you start your first day of residency. <laughs> right. When you realize you don't actually know what you're doing, you're petrified. The other residents, you think they're your friends, but they might actually like, you know, like... like they're competing with yeah, you. They're competing uh, with yeah. you. And all the different characters, like, you know, the this, <laughs> one of the... I forget what his name was, but the character in Scrubs was like the jock who always had like the cutoff right, scrubs. Right, right, Yes. There are people like that Todd. in the medical field. Yeah. <laughs> Todd. Yeah. yeah, Todd. Yeah, that's right. And then, you know, the, and how the he surgeons... He has a tattoo of like Doc on his yeah, bicep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. people, I swear to God, I know I know people like that. And, you know, the, the, the way the surgeons and the medical people interact and how the staff interact. And, and the nurses versus the and doctors. And the nurses, that's right. And it's it was so authentic and it was just so funny. And it was so, it was such an interesting show to watch. Yeah. Because uh, I've been rewatching the first season of Scrubs, and, uh, and and I agree with you. And it's very interesting to to make a comparison because you've got the fat man uh, in House of God, mm. who is this despicable character that. Well, what I didn't understand about that, he's, he's sort of portrayed as the guy who has the truth, but his yeah. ultimate objective is to become what's it called, the GI Doc of the Stars, and make lots of money. Yeah, and yeah. make lots of money uh, yeah. doing unnecessary procedures on people. Yeah, like scoping people for like doing like gastroscopies right. on rich people who have like vague abdominal syndrome. So he's like, but wait, he's almost the antithesis of what he's trying to tell you to do. So exactly. Yeah. So there's a lot of dissonance with this character. But uh, but the thing is that the, the fat man seems to hate patients. Yeah. He just hates, he hates gomers. He hates patients. 
And the equivalent on Scrubs would kind of be two characters. There's yeah. Dr. Cox, yeah. uh, who is a direct su- superior, uh, who's very, uh, who, who hates the interns and treats them badly. And there's Dr. Kelso, who's a yeah. chief of medicine, who cares more about the hospital yeah, than the patients. Like- but really, they, they, they really do care about the practice of medicine. They're, right. just, they're just not great human beings, but they do want to help patients. And I think what's interesting about the show is that as the show went, you started to see the nuance of them. Mm. Like Kelso, you realize that, well, he, yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a penny pincher, but he's trying to keep the hospital running. Right. And he tolerates, and in one of the episodes, the, when Cox actually gets promoted, because you're going to see the problem you have, mm-hmm. because, you know, he was being the bad guy, so that, Cox could be the good guy and um, you know Cox as, as, as much as he was mean and sort of abusive which again I've known many people like that he actually cared about the patients right. and he was trying to make the residents better yeah. and he was trying to show them how to be better so I think it, there was a much more faithful representation because I don't think they were despicable characters I think they were just What's the word I'm looking for? They were they had their roles to play, right? And in yeah. one early episode, Cox basically wants to operate on a patient who doesn't have health insurance, and yeah. he uses a dead person's health insurance yeah. to pay for the yeah. other one. And then JD, who's the main character, kind of ruins the whole thing by trying to be the good person and declare, yeah. no, he's like, this patient is dead. Yeah. And so he kind of, you know, and so Cox was trying to do a good thing yeah. going around the system yeah. to help a patient, even though he's a hard ass, yeah. you know, he's still trying. Whereas the fat man mm-hmm. just looks like the kind of person who's just does not want to help anybody, who just want to make money. I yeah. know. That's where I, I think the, the uh, Dr. Cox is like, yeah, that's it. He hated the system and it right. made him, you know, jaded and cynical. Yes. Yeah. But he preserved that little bit of humanity that allowed him to interact well with the patients. And you see at the one point where I, there was one episode where he was like, joke, like JD didn't know how to speak Spanish. Right. And then all the people were speaking. And then Dr. Cox comes in and he starts speaking like fluent Spanish <laughs> to the patient as well. He's like, no, you have to interact with the patients in the language. He's showing all these interesting Yeah. Uh, this, this was with Elliot actually I saw the episode recently it was the, yeah. it was the girlfriend J, JD's future girlfriend yeah because uh, there's Carla also Carla who's the the nurse Hispanic nurse yeah. and so Elliot does not speak Spanish yeah. and she doesn't think she needs she needs to and yeah. then uh, Dr. Cox comes in and starts speaking yeah. almost fluent Spanish I just was like oh shoot yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah anyways I think uh, Scrubs was uh, honestly one of my favorite medical TV shows all right, so let's wrap things up. Um, and let's wrap things up with Nico because I, I want to ask you, um, as, as a med student, did you take anything from this book, The House of God, that you didn't know before and that you think you might apply to your, your, your life as a, as, a, as, a, as a doctor, as a future doctor? I don't know if it's something that I didn't know before, but sort of it gave an extra emphasis um, on one on two things I would say the one being the uh, what I mentioned previously about the isolation having that support um, I think that's important now I think that's going to continue to be important uh, later on in residency um, so definitely that and secondly um, and one of my friends really he took this like he, he took this point away from the book more is that um, residents, and specifically internal medicine and internists, he thinks that like what he took away basically is that you need to have other things outside medicine. And I don't know if I really see that so much in the book, but I do agree with that point. For them, it's sex. Yeah, Yeah. for them, it's sex. (laughs) 
Um, but basically whether it's hobbies, whether it's other people or just something, because there are people and I do see it in medicine where the, your whole life becomes about medicine and the job and, and you know, it's a, it's a great thing. You're helping others, but to, I think to stay sane and to, to not fall into this sort of rabbit hole, um, you need to have these other, um, other aspects to your life. Yeah. I, I think that the, the challenge to medical residency is, let me ask you a question. How many dead bodies have you seen in your lifetime? Uh, you do, may have seen more than the average. Maybe. So does, does that include uh, like, at, well, at a like funeral corpse. home? Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, so I haven't been to a lot of funerals. I've been <clears> kind of <throat> lucky uh, family-wise. But um, I mean, I, I, I was in a pathology suite in front of yeah, a, a, a whole open say. body. So yeah. I've, 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 I've seen that. I don't know, maybe like five in a funeral home yeah. and one on a on a slab. Yeah, that's what it means. But most people, most people, if you ask them that question, would say zero, right? Mm-hmm. Most people who are in their twenties, thirties, probably have seen zero dead bodies, maybe one, maybe two. Mm-hmm. You, you it, you, to, it used to be a much. I mean, the the, bod, the bodies used to be much closer to us, yeah. in society. Yeah. When, you know, but I mean, you have to understand what medical residency is. It's it's a tough job. You're working insane hours. You're sleep deprived. You're working in a system that is gonna make you angry. When you have a bad day at work, people die. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's very few jobs where all those things come together. It right. can be very hard on a person's psyche. So if you don't have, when he was mentioning that, that that connection to the outside world, it can destroy you. And that's what, if there is a message to take away from House of God, I think it's that. It's that medical residency can destroy you if you let it. And you have to remember to stay sane and know how to come out the other side. Because once Mm -hmm. you come out the other side, things get better. Um, You know, they get worse in other different ways, but they do get better. so you, you have to be able to survive that and you have to, and especially as residency is becoming longer and longer now, right? Remember, internship was one year. His The whole mm-hmm. thing of House of God is I have to survive my internship yeah, here and then year. everything's going to be fine. Most residencies now are five years wow. and most deep, most Plus. people do, do additional residencies after that, additional mm-hmm. fellowships. So like you got to have stamina to get through it. And I think the, the message from House of God is don't let residency corrupt you. Remember why you got into medicine, which was to help patients. And sometimes less is more. Sometimes you have to have a, a friendship. You have to be able to have be able to plug in, and you have to remember to maintain your humanity around the patients because that's what often they care about more than anything else. I see your dead body, and I raise you. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to work for the U.S. military, yeah. uh, forensic biology. We went to Dover Air Force Base, and they were kind of showing us around. And this is the Air Force Base where all the bodies from the soldiers mm. who are fighting abroad come back and so they walked us through their autopsy room mm-hmm. which is like a giant gym and there are these uh these these tables uh, all over the place and as we were walking past all the newbies um we looked at one of them and it was like a like a body bag and they were taking something out and one of the newbies with us said is that a dog mm. and no it was a charred torso oh. limbless yeah uh, so I saw that. Saw <laughs> uh, so imagine what it does to your psyche having yeah. to see, I mean, the people who work there yeah. who receive, you know, limbs yeah. and blown off parts of wow. young soldiers, uh, yeah. all, all week long. I mean, that's, that, that must do something to you as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Chris, Nico, uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You may think you just heard an episode of the body of evidence, but not really. This was a special little thing we do once in a while. 
On our regular episodes, Chris and I look at the evidence behind common health claims, like omega-3s are good for your heart, or cell phones may give you brain cancer. We do it with skits. Well, you seemed a little depressed, so I wanted to cheer you up, and I know you hate antidepressants because you say they don't work. Well, you know, that's not exactly what I said. The issue of antidepressants is a bit more complicated than that. By asking the public. Weird question. Have you guys ever heard of a, a fecal transplant? No. <laughs> fecal transplants? As in poopy trans... <laughs> Poopy transplants. Please explain to me more. What? Pimp it, juice it, add some stuff to it, and put it back in. What are the benefits of that? Did you say pimp it? With jingles. Your solution to conception is to use contraception. Fake sponsors? Dr. Bob Babinovitz's Chakra Lube. Because without lube, your chakras would just stick together. And by, you know, actually discussing what the scientific literature says on the topic along with its limitations. Uh, and how did they get the omega-3s into the eggs? Did they squeeze fish up the chicken's reproductive tract? That would be really impractical. It's a job, Chris. Someone's gotta do it. I'm very pro-economy. So they actually fed the chickens fish to subscribe to our show just uh, subscribe to our show it's it's not rocket science